Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. My name's Chris Long, and I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, and we're running a first episode of the podcast without Hannah, so I'm missing Hannah, who usually hosts with me today. But uh, today in the studio, we'll be discussing the Humetrics HSS initiative, which is all about building more humane metrics for the humanities and social sciences, and I am really thrilled to have my colleagues from the Humetrics uh, Grant Initiative. We have a Mellon Grant. And uh, so what I want to do to start is uh, have everybody go around and introduce yourself. Nikki, you want to start? Sorry. I'm Nikki Agate. I am... Um, no, I can't do it. I was you, about to give you my old title. We yeah, need to that's go right, that's, right. that's all right. You, Nikki has a new job. We're very excited about it. So you can please tell... Yeah. Hi, yes. So I'm Nikki Agate, and I am the Assistant Director of Scholarly Communication and Digital Projects at Columbia University. Hi, my name is Jason Rohde. I am a Program Director at the Social Science Research Council, which is a 93-year-old nonprofit in Brooklyn, New York. And I direct a program called Digital Culture and co-direct a program called Media and Democracy. Hi, my name is Stacy Conkeel. I'm the director of research and education at a company called Altmetric. We're a data science company that tracks when research is discussed online. And I'm Rebecca Kennison, and I'm the executive director for a nonprofit consultancy firm called Can Consultants. We work with higher education groups to rethink the challenges of higher education, and uh, that's one reason that I'm very excited about being on this project. My name is Penny Weber. I work with Jason at the Social Science Research Council on digital culture and media and democracy. And we're missing Simone Sachi, who is who works at Liber, which is a consortium of libraries in in uh, Europe, and uh, he is here on campus, but has to fly back to Europe, so he's not here in the studio with us. And we we definitely miss him. I'm going to give a shout out to Simone. Uh, and Hi, Simone. Hey, Simone. Um, so uh, let me just start by saying how much I appreciate this initiative and in particular the people in the studio, including Simo, who is here in spirit, uh, because we've really worked very closely together for a year and a half and we have uh, our eyes on a project that is a multi-year <laughs> project and I couldn't be more excited to, to work with um, you all, you are um, such a supportive and uh, caring group of really visionary scholars and thinkers. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So maybe I'm going to kick it over to Nikki to give us a little history of how we, how we came together. So I think it was about sometime in the spring of 2016. And um, there is a call that goes out every year for the Triangle Scholarly Communication Institute, which is an amazing week-long space really for brainstorming and thinking and the bringing together of people who normally don't get a chance to work together to think through some somewhat madcap ideas and just to see if if anything might come of them. And Rebecca and I had thought about presenting something and applying to this to this institute and and we said, you know what? You know what's really 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 broken? The way that we encourage and assess and evaluate behavior and research in the humanities. And so what we wanted to, to say is, you know, what would it look like if 
instead of just evaluating, you know, articles and monographs and doing the same old, you know, the number of times something has been cited or the fancy factor of the journal it's been published in, what if we actually tried to take a humane look at metrics and looked at the full scholarly communication spectrum, all the sorts of things that we do as scholars, and what would happen if we tried to redo that. And so then we started thinking about a team. Yeah. So, and this is how, so what went into that thinking? I mean, we, you know, as you were trying to think about, okay, who could actually begin to think about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time I was working at the Modern Language Association, um, I have a PhD in French literature and I'd had some very negative experiences in the academy. And so I was certainly interested in trying to think about a healthier academy and we were thinking, okay, who would be who would be interesting? We thought, okay, we need someone who's got um, expertise in in metrics and is already trying to push the boundaries of what we measure. We're like Stacy Conkill, that's <laughs> our lady. And and then we need someone who's really been involved in areas of scholarship that are new and often don't get recognized and are undervalued. And we thought, well, who better than former NEH program director <laughs> Jason Rohde? <laughs> and then. Then I was like, we need a dean. And Rebecca said, I know the dean. I have the dean for us for this project. The and perfect dean. The perfect oh, dean. Right. She did actually say the perfect dean. And then we wanted someone with deep expertise in librarianship and really thinking through those kinds of things. And so Simo, who has a PhD in information science was our was our go-to. And Penny came along a little bit later and has been absolutely invaluable ever since. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that initial meeting for, for a minute at the Triangle SEI. How, how, how did, uh, I mean, I remember a lot of jelly beans. That's one thing I remember, <laughs> Jason and jelly beans. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My reputation. Um, I mean, I think the thing that, that's important to recognize about Triangle SCI is, it, just to give a sense of the format, is it brings, so you, su you submit an application based on a theme, and you come together, they pick about five or six teams. And what it does is it creates a comment space, so there's, there's group meetings where all of the teams meet together to discuss the common theme and their different approaches to that theme. And then there are opportunities for breakout rooms, and I mean, it is really, you know, several days in a relatively small room about the size of the studio we're in now with a lot of whiteboard and markers and just brainstorming and thinking out loud and collaborating um, and and uh, having an opportunity uh, to, to fail forward, right? Mm -hmm. to, to put forward ideas and, and think through what might work, won't, won't, won't work. And then um, there's a couple of opportunities for everybody to present their work midway through the week and at the end of the week uh, and get feedback both from the other groups who are there but also a series of external uh, evaluators. And that structure really uh, is an incubation space for ideas um, that have has generated a, a number of successful programs that the Mellon Foundation has funded. So I think that's the sort of context. And then there's a lot of jelly beans. They feed you yeah. well, right? They give you a space, which is something that we've talked a lot about in the Humetrics Initiative. They give you a space and an opportunity to think, which is past graduate school, a real gift. You know, it's not something we get very, uh, to do very often. Yeah. And unlike graduate school, you actually weren't expected to have an output at the end of it. You committed to 
somehow openly talking about your process. But I think one of the most beautiful and invaluable things about Triangle was the fact that they did not insist that we came up with something in that week. That pressure was taken away. That's right. And I think we were judged based on our engagement with the process rather than the product. And that's actually informed a lot of how the Humetrics uh, system is coming about, where we're trying to elevate the process that goes into scholarly production and not just the final product. Yeah, one of the things that was, um, I, I mean, I remember walking. In addition to the jelly beans, it was walking and, and walking together. We got up. I didn't even know any, any I didn't know what to expect at all. And, and uh, uh, all of a sudden, we were kind of walking around the grounds of the space there, and we, we came to this well of uh, water, a circular well, and we had been talking. And, and we kind of hit upon this idea of, well, what if we reverse engineered you know the metrics and how they how they uh, how they operate and begin with the values rather than what's measurable. Stacy, can you talk a little bit about that whole process? Sure. I thought it was really interesting because I obviously working for a data science company that produces metrics uh, was coming to this thinking. Okay, we're going to sit in a room. We're going to talk about the various pieces of data that are available. And then we'll come up with a list of metrics and we'll go home and we'll have changed the academy and won't that be great. <laughs> um, and when uh, I think our first walk together, Chris, you actually problematized this question of metrics and what are we actually trying to measure and set us you were the person who set us thinking about the philosophy behind it, which is appropriate as a philosopher. <laughs> um, and so when we started talking about what drives the measurement, why we're measuring, we realized that it is connected to a certain amount of values within the academy that um, have kind of come out of a place of what data is available Right. Rather than what do we, what exactly do we want to measure? So it's fairly easy to get citation counts because of citation indices that most universities have subscriptions to. It's possible to count the number of publications that are produced per year. These are all things that are very tangible, relatively easy to access data. What's less easy to measure is something like a value of openness. So how much scholarship you produce, open access. How um, candid are you in the production of scholarship? Uh, there's many different facets and ways of looking at a value like openness, similarly a value like equity, uh, which is one of the core values that we came up with as a team, doing scholarship with social justice in mind, doing scholarship for the public community. Um, so I think we realized pretty early on that we had to get to the bottom of what these values are before we can figure out the data that can be gathered in order to create new indicators to help us measure our progress towards embodying those values. Yeah, one one of the most exciting parts of this project from my perspective is that, that last point. Could we, could we undertake this in a way that embodies the very values that we're trying to advocate for? And I do think that that we're finding ourselves that sometimes that can be a challenge. We're all human beings, right? And so uh, one of the things that I am really enjoying about this process ourselves is working through our own values within our own team um, and really being able to model that as, as well as we could. Yeah, I would say that I, I mean, at one point I printed out the values sort of sheet that we came up with and I put it on the on the wall in my office because I realized that I wasn't necessarily always living those values when I came into meetings with people 
that maybe I was in, in, in some sort of situation of conflict with or something and really just being able to stay, step back and have something to look at and be like, am I really doing this? But also knowing that if we're going to ask other people to do this, we need to be able to walk the walk. <laughs> yeah, so, so maybe we could talk just briefly about the five values that came out of that initial conversation and then kind of what unfolded after that with respect to the, the vision behind the Mellon Grant. You want to take that one, Jason? Uh, sure. The, the five values. So, so I'm on the spot. I don't have my infographic. So yeah, in well, we have, we have so equity. Five, we five values are, are openness, equity, yeah. uh, community, qu community, quality, collegiality, and collegiality. Right. right. And you can uh, download a lovely in infographic of of those values at Humanities Commons. Bit.ly slash Humetrics HSS. That's right. And uh, in doing so, you'll note that there's a bunch of sub-values. So, I mean, part of the, I mean, it may be helpful, I think, actually, to think, you know, what is the relationship of, of, of values to scholarly output? And what we, what we spend a lot of time doing is brainstorming not only a set of values, and we gathered those from a variety of different places, but also um, scholarly outputs. So just like a journal article or a syllabus, you know, things that we produce. Um, and in between, there's actually a series of practices that are engaged in creating those scholarly back values. And, you know, the, the phrase that we keep coming back to uh, suggests that if, if we don't start from a place of values uh, to, to derive these objects, then values are going to, or, or the, the objects themselves and what we can measure, as Stacey was saying, will, will determine our values, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, we've sort of worked th from that place and really thinking through um, how do you bridge the gap of what the value is and how it's going to inform the practice as you create the scholarly object. And then we started wondering, so how do we, how do we capture indicators that might, either through you know, actual indicators, metrics that can be computationally uh, examined, or through self-reflective practices or uh, other kinds of sort of, sort of more qualitative uh, assessment approaches, um, capture the values that are informing our work and capture the process, which is really what we're trying to focus on. And yeah, I think I would add that, you know, we have these sort of five what we've been calling core values that are very much still in contestation and in progress. Um, and under those, we have, you know, sort of sub values that might be ways of interpreting those bigger picture ones. But if you go to our blog, which is humetricshss.org, um, there are all sorts of photos of the whiteboards where we sort of sat down and we we're like, what? So what are all these processes, as Jason talks about, what goes into, say, putting on a, a conference? Where are the decisions that you're making and how might those be values-based, even if those values are not something you're actually aware of when you're putting together that event? And we came up with so many, so many values that that might together contribute to creating a more equitable and more enjoyable and more collegial um, academic life. And I think Chris got a bit Aristotle there on yeah, it, didn't you? I probably did. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I did. But I mean, I think the, the unpacking of the, the scholarly endeavor was so powerful during that time that we were together in Triangle SEI. And then also in the workshops that we've done, we can talk a little bit about the Mellon Grant in a minute. But the unpacking, so whether you begin with values and go through practices and processes and pro then to products, or you begin with products and sort of think backward to, okay, well, what, 
how are these values, how's the value of, of openness um, expressed or embodied in this product? I mean, both, both ways of thinking have proven to be really important. And as we bring more people through that process, it becomes more clear to, I think, all of us that, oh, actually, the process of thinking it through is really critical. And I think the process also reveals the hidden collaborations that we, as particularly in humanities and social scientists, often gloss over. So your relationships to librarians, to support, so so-called support staff, to archivists, to your colleagues down the hall. Um, and also, you know, a variety of alt-ac kind of, or alternate ac academic practitioners. And one of the things I think came out of our original conversation was a need to not just uncritically adopt metrics and and outcomes that are that are mostly science driven, right? That are mm -hmm. often uh, the basis of where these metrics are coming from. But to think through what makes most sense, what are the blind spots as we think about what makes most sense for the humanities and social sciences? So, for example, um, one of our our discussions are centered around the syllabus, and you know, oftentimes we have different ways of measuring citations and the humani humanities, but we all know that there's a really long tail on humanities scholarship. And sometimes it takes years just for an article to get published, and then years longer for the, that citation to be picked up in the books and articles that come from that. But can we look at a syllabus and think about the citations on a syllabus, which can happen much more immediately and be seen distributed across a wider geographic uh, space and have an impact on something we care deeply about, which is student engagement, uh, in ways that we don't necessarily see those citations taking up in the academic literature or, or a different kind of academic literature. And to echo what Jason's getting at, I think uh, one of the core things that's driving our work is um, this emphasis on understanding scholarship not as something that happens in isolation where you just do your research, you publish a paper on it, you present it at conferences, and then you're done with research, and then you move into a separate sphere, which is teaching and completely detached from scholarship. The mentoring that we do, the um, teaching that we do, the research that we do is all interrelated, and it's all part of scholarship writ large, which is really what we're trying to do is help repair the academy in terms of understanding and valuing all of the scholarly work that we do and the scholar's whole life well lived, as Chris put it. Absolutely. I mean, w one of the things I think is uh, I'm often finding myself explaining to new people to sort of hear about the project at the, uh, when they first hear about it, particularly when they hear about it from a dean. It's a very dangerous thing because they think, this. oh, well, this is just another um, top-down administrative structure that's going to be Im imposed on people. And we have from the beginning, beginning talked about the importance of empowering faculty members, staff, everybody who wants to, you know, engage in this kind of scholarly practice over the course of their lives to, art, to articulate what their path to intellectual leadership is and to use these metrics as, as enabling them to tell a more textured story about what they care about. So the, the vision for this is to provide a framework that will give a lot of different kind of opportunities for people to talk about how different parts of their own intellectual work fit together into a coherent whole that makes sense for them. And so it's not uh, an attempt to say, well, this is what scholarship is. It's really a framework through which we can emb embody the, the deepest values that brought us all to the scholarly endeavor in the first place. And to that point, I think this is one of the reasons why it's been very, very important to us um, when we put together the Mellon proposal to really put in a whole bunch of workshops where we would be bringing together 
faculty members because in all honesty, we do not have someone who is a full-time teaching faculty member on our team. We, um, most of us have taught. Some of us still teach um, part-time, but we do not have someone who is on the tenure track right now or who's gone through that. Um, and so it's become really, really important to us when we put together these workshops that we are thinking about bringing together faculty from tenure stream to tenure to not on the tenure track at all, um, from community colleges and from small liberal arts colleges and from research one institutions and just making sure that all those voices are getting heard and that we're not getting caught in an echo chamber of alt acness. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, and actually, that's what brings me to Penny for a second, because that, you know, your your contributions to our project have really been invaluable. I mean, it's it's been um, critical from my perspective to hear your uh, your perspective on kind of what we're talking about, and, but also your, your very sophisticated understanding of uh, the scholarly life and, you know, what's possible. Yeah, I think I have a kind of... Um strange but interesting relationship to this project in that I am not in academia at all, really. I work for an educational nonprofit, and I I see a lot of um, scholarship and research, but I have never taught, and I don't have a master's or a PhD. And so it's, it's interesting to kind of have this, like, 10,000 view of the academy as someone who is not a part of it, to see it sort of transformed by these values or potentially transformed by these values and see, like, I think I am outside of any kind of bubble in that <laughs> sense. Um, I don't, I'm not often invited into bubbles. And so it's very interesting to see, to see the ways that we can and should be involving other people who are also not invited into those bubbles. Yeah. And the way, the way those sorts of invitations enrich the endeavor, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I, I mean, I can think of many times during our conversations where you've added something or reminded us something or asked us about something that that uh, that comes out of your own experience that from a from a little bit of a distance, but also from your own expertise that you've developed at the SSRC to really understand a wider diversity of how scholarship is practiced. Yeah, and I think like the nonprofit aspect of that um, is that we are sort of as as a fellowship maker institution, we are constantly trying to help people who do not have the resources to be involved in these conversations um, and to bring them into um, the sort of transformative space that scholarship allows. Um, and so I think just being in, in contact with people who are helped through that and also like understanding their needs really um, yeah, it gives me a perspective on this. So, well, we do. We we were able to convince the Mellon Foundation to give us this grant, as we mentioned. And in thank the, in, you, thank you, Mellon. Yes, thank you. And uh, I, let me just say a word or two about it, so because I'd like to have a little bit of a conversation about why we're all here on campus right now, which was to to participate in the workshop on the syllabus. So, so we were able to um, win a Mellon grant to pilot some of these ideas to work out some of the theoretical framework behind them, and uh, we had a really, I think. You know, transformative meeting in October here at Michigan State to talk about the values themselves, whether we had the right values. We had thrown them out and had them on the floor and they were, you know, and then rebuilding them and contesting them. And that was a really 
important for all of us, I think, to to have a, a broader sense of perspective about what was resonating with the values and what wasn't, and whether even values <laughs> itself is a, is an approach that resonated or not. We had a really important conversation about that. But uh, over the last day and a half, we've had a conversation around the syllabus. And that has been um, an important uh, part of the project because it gets at the value of teaching and it also allows us to think beyond sort of more traditional kinds of scholarship. So who wants to take up a little conversation about the syllabus? Well, I just want to say, so within the context, we, we chose two case studies uh, for the purposes of our grant. And, and what we wanted to do is look at two different kinds of objects that were not you know, uh, an article or, or a book, you know, which are the, the main currency of most of our disciplines. Um, and so the syllabus was one object, and the other one is this notion of annotation. So we'll be looking at uh, small-scale, small-scale contributions to other scholarship within sort of under the rubrics of, of values that are connected with collegiality and collaboration. Um, and, and the question we have, and the, just the course of the grant, is how do we demonstrate their value to one scholarly life and to the broader academy? And are there ways that we can measure this effectively so that people can make convincing cases within their own review systems, right? Um, so this whole uh, past day and a half, we've looked at the syllabus from two key perspectives. One is the syllabus is an object that you yourself create. So what are the the values that you infuse as you as a creator of a syllabus, and so how does it reflect your own scholarly contribution, or does it? That's a, that was a question on the table, um, and then uh, also as uh, a little bit of time spent talking about someone who is cited in a syllabus, and does this reflect a sort of uh, scholarly ecosystem or network? Uh, and, and network of citations that can add to our understanding of how knowledge is transmitted through humanities circles that are outside of the traditional domain uh, objects. Yeah, I would add to what Jason was saying there that um, the syllabus seems to bring almost a deeper engagement with given texts, just given the, the number of them that are included than, say, even a journal article. You have a whole class of students who are maybe spending an hour talking about your work and shouldn't this be something that you can somehow bring back to your tenure and promotion committee and say, hey, <laughs> this is telling a story about my impact. But I think one of the things that we're very aware of is that we don't want to duplicate the problems that we already know exist within citation practices um, and are very aware that we don't want to say um, because you're not cited on a syllabus or how can, I mean, and, you know, and there are numerous pro problems that we already know about citation practice within articles and books that we don't want to have replicated just because we can pull out who's being cited within a syllabus. Um, so that's, that's one caveat that, that, that I want to put out there. Um, the, the other thing is, um, one of the things that we're really looking to do is inspire people to think about the values and to be self-reflective about their own process when they're putting together a course, um, if they have the, abil the ability to be flexible like mm -hmm. that. And we just spent quite a lot of time the last day and a half talking about the constraints around um, syllabus development, um, depending on what level the course might be and where you're at and um, whether you're a, 
uh, adjunct or uh, full professor um, and creation of work along those lines too. Um, and what was most interesting to me that came out of this discussion was whether there's an ability to provide context for what is being mm. cited within a syllabus, um, particularly uh, sentiment analysis and so on, which is a kind of a new field, newish field. Stacey can probably speak better to this, but a newish field within within uh, metric analysis and so on. We're trying to understand is um, what's happening, is this a positive or a negative? Is this being presented in a, in a contextual way? Um, so the context thing, I think, is, is something that's very important for us, too, as we're thinking not just ourselves about uh, what kind of values we can derive from syllabi, but also what faculty and instructors can bring into the syllabus project. And that context is really where it comes back to this question of what makes metrics humane. It's seeing them as affecting a human being at the end of the day who uh, has very real material concerns related to their employment, related to their scholarly practice uh, that, that these metrics definitely affect. And so we always are trying to be mindful of all the ways in which we need to contextualize this data. Absolutely. Okay, well, we are just about half an hour here, so I think we're going to uh, wrap things up. Does anybody have uh, any final comments that they want to make? We just invite uh, you to visit the website at humetricshss.org uh, and uh, look forward to your comments. We're also often on Twitter. Yes, exactly, and we'll, we'll be posting the podcast up there, and you all, uh, can find it there. We're, this is one of the ways we're trying to live out our value of openness and uh, reflecting on our own uh, our own work as we do it and um, that's one of the things that I'm been most grateful for and um, among this group is that we've we've actually been doing that in a real from the beginning we were doing that with with blogging and now with the website and you can find uh, some reflective blogs blog pieces there as well so um, I want to give a big thank you to everyone involved in this podcast, the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast, including our technical producer, Kevin Zula. Nice job, Kevin. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. And our marketing director, producer, Ryan Kilcoin. Ryan is um, really the one responsible for the vision behind this work, and I'm grateful for all the advice and uh, thoughts that he provides me in the, around this podcast and around so many other things that have to do with the College of Arts and Letters. Thanks, Ryan. Of course, I have to give the qualification. Uh, well, I have to say you can access all of Michigan State University College of Arts and Letters and uh, Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast season one and our current season two at uh, go.cal.msu.edu slash podcast. And finally, the ideas and opinions expressed on this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters. Any of our sponsors, I don't know, do we really have a lot of sponsors, Ryan? Anyway, we, we can talk. I keep thinking that every time we say this. Or any official entities at Michigan State University. So be sure to tune in to our next podcast and look for us at our social media news feeds. Thank you all for listening. Thanks. <laughs>